Please open your Bibles uh, to today's sermon passage. In the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 955. Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is yours. Your body is good. Your body is sovereign. What you wear, what you eat, when you sleep, how and who you have sex with, this is all up to you. The choices you make for health care, whether to carry a pregnancy to term or not, whether to eat that cake or not, whether to stop eating, working out, or whatever. It's up to you. Body sovereignty is the clear inhabitants of your choices and domain of flesh. It is the protection and respect of your boundaries and your body. It is individuation. It is where you begin and everyone else ends. You are an adult, grown and thus free. Body sovereignty is the advocacy of your needs, desires, and hungers. Body sovereignty is the permission to choose, to err, to protect, to feel, to experience, to play, to refuse, to take up space, to be different, to be the same, to make noise, and to perform for no one. It is to be beholden to no one but yourself. So writes self-described feminist life coach Rachel Cole in an article on the concept of body sovereignty, which, as the name implies, holds that each individual has the right to complete control over their own physical body. This idea of body sovereignty functions in some ways at a political level, arguing that the state has no authority to dictate what people do with their bodies. So whether it's abortion or sodomy laws or vaccine mandates, 
The idea is that the state cannot compel anyone to do anything with their body. The concept also functions at a social level, encouraging people to cast off society's expectations with respect to physical appearance, weight, gender, sexual preference, style of dress. It encourages you to not care about what other people think, but to eat and wear and do whatever you would like. I think this idea of body sovereignty is really just a way of describing the radical individualism that characterizes the way Americans think about themselves. Everything around us in our society teaches us to trust ourselves, to look inside ourselves, to decide for ourselves that the highest good to which we as Americans can aspire nowadays is authenticity. So anything that would call us to conform to a standard outside of ourselves, anything that would seek to press us into a mold, anything that would require us to be or to do something other than what we want to be or do, it's to be rejected out of hand. Because the individual is the ultimate source of authority. And it's particularly the authority to do whatever you want to do with your body that is the basic building block of human flourishing, or at least American society seems to think so. Well, brothers and sisters, it's hard to imagine any idea that is more foundational to the Christian faith and at the same time more offensive to our wider world than what we read this morning in our passage from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. There at the end of verse 19, he says to the church, you are not your own. That is to say, there is another who has sovereignty over your body. In the larger context of our passage, Paul is applying the Christian sexual ethic to the church's life as they lived as followers of Christ in the wild and debauched city of Corinth. The implications for us are clear. Your choices are not yours to make with impunity. You are accountable to another for the things that you do. There is a standard outside of yourself beyond the vague notion of authenticity. Honestly, I believe this is the largest barrier to faith for people who reject the Christian message. When I was a kid, if people had an objection to the message of the Bible, it was generally either scientific or, or sort of rationalistic. That is to say, people objected to the Bible's account of creation, and they thought, I can't be a Christian because I don't believe in that. Or they might object to the notion of the Trinity, not understanding how it works, and they would think, I can't be a Christian because of that. But nowadays, I'd have to say, as I talk to people who reject the message of Christianity, they never bring those things up. No one ever wants to argue with me about evolution or creation anymore. No, nowadays, the pill that people can't swallow is the Christian sexual ethic. The idea that following Christ would mean acknowledging what Paul says here, that you are not your own. It's just too much. In fact, in my experience, if someone leaves the faith, whether that's a young person raised in the church who goes off to college and decides not to live as a Christian any longer, or even we've seen members of this church fall away, it's almost never because of persecution. 
It's almost never because of doubt. It's almost always a desire to live as if you're master over your own body. It's a desire to be free, or at least feel free, to drink as much, to do whatever drugs, to sleep with whomever. And in fact, if you're a young person, and if you want to remain a Christian even after you leave home, if you'd like for us 10 years from now to be able to, to, to meet up and you're still following Christ, then there may not be any passage of scripture that's more important for you to hear and believe than this one this morning. Because everything in the wider world in which you've been raised pushes you in the other direction. I've particularly been praying this week for the, the young people in our church. I'm sympathetic to how hard it must be. I grew up in a world where the Christian sexual ethic was widely respected, even if it wasn't always followed and applied. But that's not the world that, that my kids are growing up in. That's not the world that young people are growing up in now. And so it will require quite a bit of courage. It will require quite a bit of strength if you are to not drift along with the tide of society. If it encourages you at all, the church in Corinth was living in a world every bit as hostile to the Christian sexual ethic as our world is now. But my prayer for you, young people particularly, has been that God would give you faith. Faith to believe what the Bible says here. Faith to believe that it's true. And maybe as importantly, eyes to see that it's actually wonderfully good news. So if you, if you look at our passage, I think you'll be helped if you have a Bible open. I'm going to be hopefully poking around quite a bit in the passage here. It's not hard to see what the issue is. There in verses 15 and 16, Paul mentions prostitutes. In Corinth, we know that there was a large temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love and beauty. And around that temple were a series of brothels. And estimates and some sort of ancient records indicate that there were as many as a, a thousand women working in these brothels as prostitutes. In fact, Corinth was famous for this industry, uh, so much so that they made a verb out of the word Cor or the name Corinth, and it meant to, to commit sexual immorality with a prostitute. And it seems that not only were some of the members of the Corinthian church frequenting these establishments, but it seems they were actually arguing that it was acceptable for Christians to do so. It wasn't like they were doing it and hiding it and being ashamed of it. But they actually were arguing that it, that it ought to be embraced and maybe even encouraged. If you remember back in chapter 5, Paul rebuked the church for permitting a man who was sleeping with his father's wife to remain in the congregation. And not only that, but in chapter 5, verse 2, he says that they were arrogant about it. It seems that they thought it was a sign of their spiritual sophistication, that they were, they were sexually liberated. That, that was a sign of how, just how mature they were in Christ. And it's likely that a very similar thing was happening here with respect to the, the practice of visiting these prostitutes. It, it seems that in one of their letters to the Apostle Paul, some members of the church were making the case that because they were so spiritual, it didn't really matter what they did with their physical bodies. They believed that salvation was a matter of the, the soul and spirit. And so the physical realm was left to their discretion. If they wanted to go to brothels, it didn't really matter at all. 
In fact, it just showed how mature they were since they weren't hung up on old taboos. Paul summarizes their case with what appears to be two quotes from their letters. So we can't be 100% sure that that's what's going on. Ancient letters didn't use quotation marks to sort of set off a quote, but it seems clear from context that Paul is, is giving us some sort of snippets from their letters and then responding to them. There in verse 12, we, it seems that they said, all things are lawful for me. You see, that's how the passage begins. It says it twice there in that verse. All things are lawful for me. Uh, literally, the, the words there that Paul uses are, all things are under my authority. They were arguing that they had the right, the authority, to act however they pleased. There in verse 13, we read their next sort of justification for their behavior. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you see there the, the translators of the English Standard Version have, have put the quotes around that phrase, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I, I actually think the quote is meant to extend into the next phrase as well. And God will destroy both one and the other. I think that's actually part of the Corinthian argument that, that they're free to do whatever they want with their bodies because God's going to ultimately destroy all of our bodies in death. You see what the Corinthians have done. They were using their salvation in Christ as an excuse for their lusts. They were arguing that this physical stuff, it just doesn't matter because I'm right with God through faith in Christ. Whatever I do with my sexual desires is irrelevant because salvation is a matter of the spirit, not the body. It's just simply not the kind of thing that God is concerned with. Again, maybe you're tempted to believe the same thing. That if God is as progressive and as enlightened as we are, he won't be hung up on old-fashioned notions of sex and gender. You can be a Christian and still live however you'd like. But if that's so, look at the way Paul corrects the Corinthians. There in verse 12, he takes their slogan and he turns it on its head. All things are lawful for me, or, or all things are under my authority. Paul says, okay. Some commentators speculate this might actually be something Paul had said to them at some point uh, as he unpacked what it meant to have salvation in Christ. But now they had misused it and misapplied it. And so Paul here says, okay. All things are under your authority. But that freedom that you have in Christ is not meant to be used for the satisfaction of your lusts, but rather, Paul says, for the good of others. He rebukes them there in verse 12. Not all things are helpful. Uh, the word that Paul uses there that's translated as helpful literally means to build up or to edify. Uh, the question, Paul's saying, isn't whether you have the right to do something. Uh, the question is whether it's good whether it's helpful to others. A bit later there, halfway through verse 12, he repeats their slogan, but he rebukes it. Uh, they think they have authority over all things, but Paul tells them not to be mastered or dominated by anything. There at the end of verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. In context, and, and even given the way Paul uses this word for enslaved in the next chapter, it's likely that Paul's talking here about coming under the power of a prostitute by engaging in her services. 
He's saying that by being joined to someone else in sexual immorality, it's giving them a kind of mastery over your body that they shouldn't have. There in verse 13, he confronts their disdain for the importance of the body. They say food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Yes, it will be destroyed one day, as they say. God will destroy both one and the other. But Paul says that doesn't mean that it's meaningless. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. He says there, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And again, friends, at the risk of beating a dead horse, it's hard to overstate how radically this truth confronts our modern way of thinking. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that the human body, not just as a concept, but specifically your human body, the flesh that you inhabit at this moment, it has a purpose. It has a telos. It has a goal for which it was created. And and you're not the one to give it. We don't provide the meaning and the purpose of our bodies. We don't make or create or determine that meaning. Rather, it's given to us by an authority outside of us. Paul states it negatively first. He says, your body wasn't meant for sexual immorality. So the one who has assigned meaning to your body has not made it for sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, one that we've come across already in 1 Corinthians. It's any kind of sexual activity outside of the, the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. Paul says that's not what your body is for. When someone engages in porneia, they are violating the purpose for which their body was given to them. Rather, we see there what it is for. Paul says it is for the Lord. And the Lord himself is for the body. I think that's the thesis statement of everything Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthian church and to us in this passage. Uh, when he says there at the end of verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I think that's the one thing we truly need to understand. One thing we truly need to believe and rejoice in. I think that's the one idea that explains everything about the Christian sexual ethic that Paul tells us here. And so let's look then at how Paul unpacks that idea. I think that we see in this passage that he argues along four lines, four separate ways that he seeks to correct the Corinthians and their I have authority over my body philosophy. The first way is there in verse 14. We read there, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul's opponents were arguing that what they did with their body didn't matter. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Right? Ultimately, what you eat really doesn't matter. In the end, it all gets destroyed. Right? Uh, coming to Christ had released uh, Jewish believers, particularly from the, the Old Testament dietary laws. Right? Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. The unstated sort of connection there, what, what seems to be implied by the Corinthians, is that sex is the same way. So they might say sex is for the body and the body is for sex. But again, the body is just heading for the grave, so who cares what we do with it? But Paul reminds them, in fact, that God had raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. 
And that, in fact, we will be raised by that same power as well. That is to say, our our bodies actually aren't finally destroyed in the grave. Because we will live forever in physical, resurrected, remade, glorified bodies. See, friends, God is not opposed to the physical. Our salvation doesn't involve being delivered from a physical existence to a purely spiritual one. Rather, it involves us being freed from sin, freed from sin's consequences, so that we can live in bodies that are not plagued by death and corruption. So we live in a world that's broken by sin. Our bodies, our physical bodies, are not always disposed towards godliness. We are beset by weakness and illness. We find ourselves with sexual desires that don't please the Lord that we didn't particularly ask for. We find that living the way the Lord calls us to live sometimes feels unnatural. But as followers of Christ, we've been made new. We have a new identity given to us as God's adopted children. We have a new future as living with him forever in a resurrected body, in a body that's been made fit to live in a world made new. And so, friends, this life, this physical body, it's not meaningless. This body is the arena in which you live out your salvation in this life. There is a reason why God doesn't just save you and immediately transport you to heaven. You are here to live out in your body a life lived with an eye towards the reality that you will live forever with God in a perfected body. So Paul says the resurrection, it doesn't allow us to denigrate the physical. The resurrection proves to us that God cares about the physical. Even at Christmas time, as we sing about the eternal son of God taking on flesh, we see that God cares about the physical. Even now, the Lord Jesus is in heaven with a physical resurrected body. He didn't sort of leave the husk behind on his way up to heaven. God cares about the physical. What you do with your body matters. The second line of Paul's argument, remember I said he has four sort of things that he wants to argue here. It has to do with our union with Christ. Look there in verses 15 to 18. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul starts there by reminding them that they are members of Christ, that their bodies particularly are members of Christ. That word translated as member here has the sense of a a body part. If you're a follower of Christ, you are united to him by the Holy Spirit, such that, that his resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection, as we see there in verse 14, and, and such that your body becomes a part of his body. And so what you do with your body here on earth is, in a sense, the action of Christ himself. And so Paul here says, do you not know 
that you have this intimate connection, that your body is a member of Christ, that what you do in your body, you do in a sense on behalf of Christ. Paul reminds them also here about the nature of sex. There in verse 16, he points out that when someone visits a prostitute, that person becomes united to them. He moves on to the end of that verse to to root this idea in the creation account in Genesis 2. It says there that when two people engage in sexual intercourse, they become one flesh. That's true physically in ways that are fairly obvious. But Paul's saying there's also a spiritual reality there. No matter how casually our world tells us to treat sex, it's more than just a physical act. Sex entails a connection, a uniting of two people in a very real way. It's something that can't be undone. That's why here in verse 18, Paul says that sexual sin is qualitatively different than other kinds of sin. Right? Having sex with a prostitute is not like overeating. Right? Both might be a sinful self-indulgence. But sexual immorality has long-term implications and impacts that gluttony doesn't necessarily have. Right? If you overeat, you can not eat as much the next time. You can go for a run and pretty much undo the effects. But not so with the effects of sexual immorality. It can be forgiven, surely. Healing can take place, without a doubt. But memories, emotions, attachments, those things stay with us our whole lives. A co-mingling of souls takes place, whether we want it to or not. And so you can see when you put all those sort of data pieces together, why Paul can't abide these people in the church visiting prostitutes or giving their physical bodies over to any kind of sexual immorality. The body of a Christian is joined to the body of Christ. So if a Christian goes out and then joins himself to a prostitute, he's essentially acting like it's okay for Jesus himself to be united to that prostitute. It, It connects him to an act that is at its root immoral and selfish and and exploitative. It's just, it's unthinkable. What could be more incongruous with the way that Jesus has loved us? What could be more inappropriate than, than taking the members of Christ and uniting them in sexual immorality to a prostitute? So Paul tells us there in verse 18 that one important way that we glorify God in our bodies is by fleeing from sexual immorality. There in verse 18, here's the imperative. Here's the takeaway. Flee from sexual immorality. Brothers and sisters, we are going to be raised up someday with the Lord Jesus. We are now united to him so that our bodies are members of his body. And so what should we do as a church and as individuals in light of that truth? Paul says there in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Our bodies were made for the Lord, not for porneia. And so we must flee from it. And Christian, in our over-sexualized society, we will sometimes, maybe oftentimes, need to actively flee. It is not something that will happen if we just sort of float along with the current. Right? Sometimes fleeing from sexual immorality will look like Joseph. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, fleeing from Potiphar's wife, literally running away from the situation. 
It may look more subtle in your life. It may mean finding a way to cut off access that you might have to explicit material. It maybe means cutting off someone on social media who tempts you to immorality. Maybe it's avoiding certain kinds of entertainment. Friends, Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world, but I don't think they would be able to imagine the world that we live in. We live in a world that gives us incredible access to sex, to sexual stimulation, to sexual temptation. We are being carefully catechized. We are being constantly discipled by television, movies, music, social media. We are being taught every day to believe that the only thing that should constrain our sex lives is our desire and the consent of our partner. But Paul warns us here, sexual sin is serious. It is not a laughing matter. It is not something that, that only sort of uptight people are hung up about. Paul says it's uniquely destructive to our souls and to our bodies. It's not something to be toyed with. It's not something that you can play with and then step back from. It scars mentally and emotionally in a way that never completely heals. And again, young people, this is where you have to trust that God knows best. Wisdom means learning from the truth rather than learning the hard way by personal experience. Sex is to be reserved for marriage. Not because it's bad, not because God wants to deprive us, but because it's powerful and because God wants it to be wonderful for us. It is simply too meaningful, too important to be carried out casually. The Lord willing, we'll think about that more when we get to chapter 7. It's interesting, our culture likes to think of itself as very pro-sex. And they see the Christian sexual ethic as being very stuffy and repressed and negative. But, but we're actually the ones who value God's gift. We're actually the ones who think that it's so important that it, enjoins a, that it involves a, a, a metaphysical joining of two people. Our view of sexual intimacy is actually much higher than that of the world's. It's simply too important, too powerful, too good to practice it casually or promiscuously. And so Paul reminds the church here, you are united to Christ. Don't go off then and unite him to anyone else in sexual immorality. The third, third line of argument is there in verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Your body, your flesh and bones, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, then God's Holy Spirit himself dwells in you. He has made you his temple. I remember the significance of the temple is it, it's the place where God's presence specifically or specially dwells with his people. And Corinth was a city full of temples. But Paul's saying if you really want to know where the presence of God is, if you want to know where the true temple of God really is, look at the Corinthian believers. It was in them, their literal physical bodies, that the presence of God dwelt. They and all believers are temples where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so you see the implications for our behaviors there at the end of verse 19. Again, you are not your own. 
You belong to the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You're called to keep in step with him, to avoid anything that would grieve him or quench his influence in your life. Sexual immorality ought to be out of the question. Will you take a body where the Holy Spirit dwells and, again, unite him to a prostitute or to a Tinder hookup or a, a porn star on your computer? Of course not. It's unthinkable. So, Christian, do you cultivate an awareness of the Spirit's presence in your life? Do you make decisions about what to do with your body or what not to do with your body based on the reality that God's Holy Spirit lives within you? Paul seems to think that, that this information makes a significant difference in the way that we live, that this awareness would keep us from sexual immorality. And so I'd urge you to cultivate an awareness of the Spirit's presence in your life, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The fourth and final line of reasoning there is in verse 20. Again, verse 19 ends with this idea that we are not our own. It's an idea so far into our way of thinking. But, but really, there are three reasons, it seems, that the Bible gives us for why we are not our own. The first is the one we just saw. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a very real way in which you belong to him. You are his home. The second reason isn't explicit in this passage, but I think is assumed by everything that Paul says here. And that is, you, you are not your own by virtue of creation. God made everything that is, including your body and mine. I didn't cause myself to exist, and neither did you. You received your body as a gift. We've received our bodies in trust. We've received them as a stewardship. And because that's the case, we aren't the ones who determine what our bodies are for. We aren't the ones who decide what we do with them. This is what the psalmist is pointing at in Psalm 100, verse 3. It says there, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see how clear it is? It's he who made us, and we are his. We simply don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who made us. We are his. We are his people. We are his sheep. I think we can understand this without too much effort if we think about it. Let's say that you're a salesman, and the business that you work for, as, as part of your uh, job, they provide you with a car so that you can do your work. I think you probably understand that that car was given to you for work purposes. The company will set standards for you uh, regarding what it be believes constitutes an appropriate use of that car. So maybe if they're generous, they might permit you to use it for personal purposes, or they may not. But in any event, it's their car, and so they make the rules about what you can do with it. If you use the car for drag racing or hauling trailers, you won't have the car for very long. In the same way, our bodies belong to the Lord. You're not your own because you didn't make your body. You don't have sovereignty over your body, but the one who made it does. We are gods. We do not belong to ourselves. We're not our own by virtue of creation. 
The third reason we don't belong to ourselves is the one that Paul unpacks here in verse 20. So you have the Holy Spirit's presence, you have the, the reality of creation, and then the third and final reason that we don't belong to ourselves is there in verse 20. You were bought. You were bought with a price. The imagery here is clear. We've moved on now from the temple to the slave market. Paul is saying that we have been purchased by God himself. And as such, you are his possession. You don't belong to yourself because God has purchased you. In the same way that a slave understands that he doesn't just do whatever he wants, but he carries out the wishes of his master. In the same way, those of us who have been bought by God with a price are not our own. Now, I think to make sense of that, we need to take a step back. Because my fear is that that sounds like really bad news to you. It, it might actually sound to you like this passage is a massive downer. That you can't just do whatever it is you want to do. That you're not the boss of your own body. That you belong to God and so you have to glorify another. I understand if it sounds like this is a bunch of bad news. But I, I want to try and convince you that it's not. I want to try and convince you that what Paul is talking about here is actually the most wonderful, life-giving, joyful soul-filling, eternally delightful news you could ever hear. But here's what I think you have to understand. None of us are free. It is the nature of sin that even though we belong to God, we long to be the boss. We desperately want to call the shots in our own lives. We want to be the ones who decide who we are, what we are, who we will sleep with, how we will spend our time and money, what we will think and what we will do. And sin is happy to allow us that illusion. The devil is quite happy to allow you to think that you are free, and that you're making your own choices out of freedom. But the truth is, is that we are all slaves. We all serve sin. We are all left chasing the things that we think will bring us life, only to find out that they don't. We are all beset by behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and attitudes that we hate, but we can't change. So if you've ever lost your temper, if you've ever done something that you're rightly ashamed of, if you've ever acted out sexually in a way that, that shocked or disgusted you, if you've ever done something that you swore you wouldn't do, if you've ever tried to break a bad habit only to fail time and time again, if you've ever been caught up in addictions, then you know this truth, that you're not actually free. That any sense of autonomy you might have is only an illusion. This is why in John chapter 8, we read this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, sin promises freedom. Sin promises that you can sit on the throne of your life. It allows you that illusion. But in reality, sin sits on the throne of your life and you serve it. So when Paul says here that you've been bought with a price, friend, don't get it twisted. He's not saying that you used to be free and now you're God's slave. And so you're stuck doing whatever he says to do. 
No, the truth is you were enslaved to a terrible, abusive master. You were the servant of a cruel and piteous slave driver. And even worse, you thought you were free. But in reality, you were only free to do the will of your master, sin. You were only free to rebel against God. But God, in his great love for you, took pity on you. He wasn't content to leave you in those awful circumstances. He wanted to deliver you, to restore you, to make you his. And so he made the payment necessary to secure your release. Paul doesn't tell us here, but the, the payment is the death of Christ. Paul says you were bought with a price. And that price is Christ's blood. You see, friends, in his great love for you, God sent his son to take on human flesh. The eternal son of God became a man and lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The only man who's ever lived who was not enslaved to sin by nature. And Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. He offered himself up in our place as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us, taking on himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin against God. Jesus' blood then shed on the cross is that payment with which God purchased you. This is why the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20 to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is why the book of Revelation shows us this great scene in heaven in Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus has ransomed us from captivity at a terrible price. Jesus obtained us with his own blood. So Christian, you are not free. You are not free to sleep with whomever. You are not free to determine your own gender or the meaning of your body. You're not free to engage in any kind of immorality or sin. And that's good news. Because you weren't made to be free. That's a delusion. You can just look around and see. People who do whatever they want aren't actually happier. There's an initial thrill a feeling for a moment like you're in control of your life, but that thrill never lasts. We become the slaves of the things that we embrace. Young people, when you go off to college, or, or all of us, when we go on social media, or watch an advertisement, or see a movie, it, it will seem, perhaps for a moment, like being your own master is the best way to live. But friends, this new boss is the same as the old boss. It's just slavery to sin, packaged and sold to you as freedom. You will not find life and happiness there any more than the prodigal found life and joy squandering all that he had with prostitutes and drinking and ending up in the pig pen. Friends, this is good news, what Paul says here, because the reason that you're not free is that you belong to God, that God has made you 
his, that he's brought you into his family, and yes, into his service. God has redeemed you, ransomed you, obtained you, purchased you, not to harm you, not to exploit you, or or in any way to restrain you from something that would be good for you. God's done all of those things at the expense of his own son's blood to heal you, to recreate you, to ultimately shower you with eternal salvation, to raise you up on the last day by his great power as he raised up Christ, according to verse 14. Friends, it's not slavery to serve a good master who only bids you to do what is right and what is good and what is beneficial to your soul and conducive to your salvation. It's not oppressive to be told to do things, or I'm sorry, it's not oppressive to be told not to do things that are poisonous to your soul. It's not unkind of God to forbid things to you that are beneath your dignity as someone made in his image. It's no loss in the end to walk away from something that's killing you in order to embrace the very thing that you were made to do. Glorify God with your body. So brothers and sisters, again, we have before us this morning a teaching that is really right at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We live in a world that can imagine no salvation beyond body sovereignty, beyond being free to do whatever you want, free to determine everything about who you are. But God's word calls us to something so much better. The blood of Christ was shed to purchase us for a far superior life, living under God's sovereignty, living for his glory, living as a temple of his Holy Spirit. So as we come to the Lord's table now, let's come as a way of reaffirming our commitment to living as the Lord's people. Let's come to the table as a way of delighting in the good news that we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price. Let's come to the table now as people who have been obtained, ransomed, redeemed by this broken body and shed blood. Let's come to the table now with joy that the Lord in his kindness has given us a way to glorify him in our bodies. Even now, as we physically rise from our chairs and come forward in faith and eat and drink the body and blood of Christ together. Now, if you're not a member of this church, but if you're a baptized member of another church that believes the same gospel that you've heard here this morning, then you are more than welcome to join us here at the table as a sign of the great unity that we have with every church that loves the Lord Jesus and his gospel. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're actually not ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper yet. You're still living as someone who's not been bought at a price This is a celebration of something that's not yet true of you. So if you're not a follower of Christ, instead of coming forward, uh, we'd encourage you you to stay in your seat. No one's going to think that's weird or or stare at you. Take time to, to turn from your sin. Put your trust in Jesus. If you have questions about what that means, what it means to be a follower of Christ, we'd be delighted to talk to you more. I'd encourage you to talk to the person who brought you this morning or come see me after the service. But in accordance with the Apostle Paul's instructions, a little bit later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, 
We want to take time now to examine ourselves before we come to the table. We'll have a moment for silent reflection and confession, and then I'll lead us in a corporate confession of sin. So let's pray together.